0: Well, the issue of swearing in Parliament was back in the news this week after the opposition Conservatives accused the Prime Minister of using the F-word during a particularly testy question period exchange on Wednesday. Now, the Speaker of the House looked into it, couldn't come to any conclusion one way or another. Uh, The mics were off. There was a lot of noise, so we don't know. The Prime Minister also wasn't saying. Instead, he quoted his dad, Pierre, who was also accused of using the same word by the opposition in Parliament 51 years ago. Here's Trudeau's son and father. What is the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say you move your lips in a particular way? And here's Pierre. What is the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say fuddle-duddle or something like that? (laughs) Pierre Trudeau and Justin Trudeau, there's a David Aiken story, of course, taken from that on Wednesday. So we don't know. The whole episode comes just uh, a few weeks after BC's premier John Horgan was caught on Record, or he was recorded using the very same word during another heated debate. This time in the BC Legislature. When will this premier step up in this house and give British Columbians the assurance they need that they will be supported by a family doctor? <laughs> Honorable Speaker, the opposition characterizes the opposition characterises cooperative federalism, making our country work by ensuring that there's adequate... Do you want to hear it, man? Do you want to hear it? Do you just want to hear your voice? Why do you go in the bathroom and talk to yourself in there? Because you don't want to hear answers in this place. Seriously. The Canada health transfer is fundamental to health care in British Columbia. It's fundamental. And it has been for generations. Do you care? Do you really care? Or do you want to hear yourself? Do you want a headline or do you want action? (laughs) Well, that kind of language is considered unparliamentary, of course. But what about swearing in general? We want to ask more about it. Why do we do it? Why is it such a charged subject at times? Is it okay for politicians or leaders to swear in public? All kinds of questions there. Well, it turns out swearing isn't all that bad. At least that's what my next guest says. Or we, we wouldn't have been doing it for so long. In fact, it could actually be a positive thing in some situations. Beware, even now men and women are judged differently or held different standards when it comes to swearing. And what about kids? How carefully should you watch your tongue around them? Well, to help us look at all those darn questions is Emma Byrne, a robot scientist by profession, but also author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language, and How to Build a Human, What Science Knows About Childhood. Emma Byrne, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're
1: welcome.
0: Thank you, Ben. Um, you know, I was looking around for someone to speak interestingly about swearing. Your, your name pops up all the time. I was. How did you get interested in that particular subject?
1: Well, I started out, as you mentioned, as a a robot scientist, I was doing things with artificial intelligence, with both physical robots, things that uh, we could get to move around and do things, but also AI in machines, and how we can get machines to learn things. And I realized that the great downside we have in trying to teach robots anything is we can't make them hurt. So (laughs) most of humanity, most of intelligent life is about getting as much pleasure out of life and avoiding as much pain as possible. So my interest took me into the study of pain, which then threw me over to, um, there's a chap in Keele University here in the UK called Richard Stevens, who studies the link between swearing uh, and pain. And from that point on, I was hooked. It was by the time that I'd accumulated about a two-foot-deep um, pile of uh, papers all about swearing, all of which boldly asserted that they were the only scientists studying swearing because, of course, it's such a taboo topic. That I thought I really have to put all this together. So that's how I ended up writing about swearing. It's uh, it was either going to be that or a book about pain.
0: Uh, And I guess Richard Stevens has studied both. It's interesting that that you mentioned in his research that one of the things that he set out to prove is if swearing is so bad uh, when it comes to something like pain, why do we keep doing it?
1: That's right. I mean, this idea that we would keep doing something that is counterproductive um, seems so... Unusual and humans are tricksy people. We do, you know, we lie to ourselves about things like the value of how much something will be worth in the future. We're more likely to take a small reward now than a bigger one later. But when you look at most of our evolutionary history, The chances of, for example, that nice juicy fruit still hanging on the tree next week and not having either fallen down or been eaten by a bird or stolen by your neighbour are pretty small. So the kinds of things that we think of as human failings and human frailties actually turn out to be quite adaptive, quite useful. Um, And he thought there must be an adaptive reason for swearing and perhaps the fact that we do it so much when we're in pain, that might be the adaptive reason for having it. And it turns out there are other adaptive reasons as well. For example, avoiding physical conflict with people or signaling frustration or even happiness, particularly among sport fans. Um, There are lots and lots of adaptive uses for swearing. So as much as we might say, oh, no, it's a terrible thing, the fact we're so addicted to it shows quite how much use it has.
0: And Stevens, I gather, found that in fact swearing did help us uh, endure pain to some extent.
1: That's right. And whenever I get to do a live talk, which I desperately missed during the two years of COVID, but before that, um, I used to get people up on stage and have someone, a volunteer, stick their hand into ice water to recreate Rich Stevens' experiment. So this isn't just chilled water, this is water that's essentially 50 50 ice and water. And I tend to find that with most of my volunteers, as with most of his experimental subjects, people can keep their hands in that ice water about 20 to 30 percent longer when they're swearing than when they're using a neutral word. So it's great. I get to explain a bit about control conditions and randomisation and the importance of setting up experiments really well. But I also get some cheap laughs at the expense of this poor person who's got their hand in ice water while I carry on lecturing. So I do miss doing that.
0: Yeah, I always think of stubbing one's toe as being the universal cue to swear Uh, when in pain. Um, Why is swearing so taboo? It's,
1: It's interesting. If it weren't taboo, it wouldn't be swearing. So one of the things I actually got to collaborate with Rich Stevens and a lexicographer called Jonathan Green on a project looking to see if it was possible to make new swear words. So there's a bit of a theory that perhaps swearing works because of the the shape of the words and how they feel as we say them. And so there are a few sort of similar sounding or feeling words that have been suggested the other suggestion was that perhaps swearing helps us with pain because it sounds funny or it distracts us in some way. So we had another swear word. So we had um, fouch which was mirroring the the shapes of of normal swearing and twist which is hard to say without smiling, I have to say. But twizpipe. neither of those twist pipe, yes, yeah. neither of those were remotely as effective at killing pain as a real swear word. Um, Rich has also done experiments with his students and showed that if you use what are called minced oaths the things like sugar or blast instead of what you really want to say, um, there is no painkilling effect. As hard as you might be thinking the real swear word, the the ones that aren't taboo just don't work. It is the emotional power of that taboo nature of the swearing that actually makes it effective. Is there
0: a long, have we been swearing forever? Have, Have we been swearing since language was around?
1: I think we probably have. I mean, Obviously, written records don't go back pre-written language. Um, But the reason that I strongly suspect it to be the case is what happens when you teach chimpanzees to use sign language. So there were a a heroic couple uh, called Deborah and Roger Foots who used to um, essentially foster chimpanzees to live with them and their research students and raised them similarly to how you would raise a child. So conversing with them in order to, you know, basically get them to, you know, express their needs. So they wanted food or drink or to talk about things like pictures they'd seen in a magazine or games that they were playing. And these chimpanzees became incredibly fluent and started to coin some of their own pair- pairings, the kind of things that I would recognise my own daughter saying at the age of about two or three. So For example, they combined the signs for hot and drink to describe a thermos flask. But the thing is, if you're living with chimpanzees, you really have to instill a, um, let's call it a defecation taboo. You want them potty trained and you want them knowing that pooing anywhere other than a potty is bad. So they had this one sign for everything to do with going to the toilet, which was dirty. And they would use that to talk about going to the toilet. And in fact, uh, washo the main chimpanzee in this tribe uh, invented the phrase dirty good for potty but they would use the word dirty in much the same way that we might use another uh, fecally related word when something's annoying us. So right. if someone was irritating, uh, you know, one of the um, the researchers was irritating Rosho, she would use the sign. And so would the other chimpanzees. And because the sign is made by bringing the back of the wrist up underneath the chin, uh, Roger Foots describes how sometimes you could hear in the middle of arguments between chimpanzees, the clacking of teeth as they were basically calling each other, a, I won't say it on the air, but, right. they, you know, they were not taught this as a swell word they were taught a word about going to the toilet and they were taught that going to the toilet is taboo and they themselves came up with the use of this word then instead of biting or kicking or scratching or even throwing the actual stuff that they'd you know generated such a taboo about.
0: Right. I mean, it's foul language, so to speak. I'm speaking with Emma Byrne, a robot scientist by training, also author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language and How to Build a Human, What Science Knows About Childhood. We're talking about swearing. It's become an issue. We've had some incidents with politicians either apologizing for swearing uh, in the legislature or being accused, at least, of swearing. Uh, After this, we'll talk a bit more about um, about children and swearing. Uh, and that's a nice segue into our next topic as well. And also just why it is that politicians, uh, it's still so taboo uh, in some ways for politicians to swear and how it differs between uh, male and female politicians as well. That's after this. I'm speaking with Emma Byrne, author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language and uh, How to Build a Human, What Science Knows About Childhood, also co-host of the Non-Fic podcast, which I highly recommend. Uh, Emma, we've had some some situations here of late about politicians swearing, uh, or at least being accused of swearing. Why do you think that swearing still carries such weight when it comes to public figures, for instance? Um, It still seems to be particularly taboo in sort of corporate settings, politics. It's seen as really somehow losing your control in the public sphere.
1: I think the loss of control is a big part of it. We expect of leaders that ability to not become flustered under pressure. And as we know, swearing is something that helps us to ground feelings of anxiety or stress or frustration or pain. And we sort of hope that our leaders are somehow above this. And of course, they're not. They're human. And occasionally this will leak out. Um, I think as well, those feelings of uh, or certainly the outrage that's generated when a public figure swears is a lot to do with essentially signalling what we think is acceptable to each other. And one of the things that we find about swearing is that the way that people rate swearing is highly subjective, depending on who they've been told is doing it. So, for example, if they're given um, swearing phrases written down and told that this is something that was said by a man, they're much less likely to rate that as highly offensive as if they're saying the same swearing phrase was said by a woman. So I think that we do these things about, you know, who is allowed to swear in society and what role it has. We tend to be quite judgmental. And yet most of us set limits for swearing on other people that are far below the amount of swearing we do ourselves. We tend to be massively hypocritical about swearing. And I think all of us have a sort of slightly guilty part of us as well that thinks we should be swearing less, apart from those people who do exercise. iron self control.
0: How much does swearing vary around the world? I mean, I grew up in Quebec uh, speaking English and French. Quebec swear words are very different from France French swear words. They're almost all church-related, at least traditionally. Words like tabernacle and chalice are actually swear words in French. How much does swearing vary depending on where you are? I guess it really depends on what's taboo.
1: Yeah, this was one of the most fascinating things, aside from the chimpanzee result, which was the fact that we don't agree as a species about what is taboo. So in Japan, things that are to do with 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 poo, with feces, are not anywhere near as taboo as they are in Northern Europe or North America, uh, which is why we have both the poop emoji and there's a building in downtown Tokyo that's called the Golden Poo. <laughs>
0: um,
1: so that you know, the, there's this belief for example, that there isn't swearing in Japan, but there is, it's just different words. Um, There are countries that use names of animals, others that use names of illnesses. And as you said, uh, in Canada, as opposed to in continental France, there's massive difference between what kind of swear words are taboo, even though it's ostensibly the same language. And a lot of that is to do with what is passed down from adults, and the most, uh, the time when we are most influenced as to what constitutes swearing is in adolescence. And the people who manage to discover this are the people who study multilingual people like yourself. And looking at the age at which somebody learns a language and learns the swear words in those languages gives us a good idea of when swearing connects to its emotional impact. If you learn a swear word in a second language or a third language adolescence that will continue to have the same emotional impact as the swear words you learned in your first language we can see this with things like the galvanic skin response how sweaty your palms get when you say it or when you read it but if you learn that swear word after adolescence you just don't seem to internalize that same emotional resonance so whatever is in the culture around the time that you're in your late teens and early 20s whatever has become taboo is what becomes essentially swearing for you, which also explains the generational difference we quite often see between what our grandparents thought was obscene and what we think is obscene.
0: So you would see, for instance, swearing evolve over time. Do you have have any hints on where it might be going, given how much communication has changed in the last few decades?
1: Well, I know certainly here in the UK, uh, the influence of particularly American swearing and and swearing in the United States' cultural output has had a huge influence for ages. Um, I'm wondering if with more multilingual output on uh, networks like Netflix, we might actually get a bit more inventive and start including Korean swear words or Spanish swear words, but that loaning of swear words from other cultures it seems to be something we do we pick them up by like magpies but again if it's picked up by adult speakers of that language we we don't do it correctly or fluently um there's a brilliant anecdote by a linguist called John Mark Dawley who writes about his own adventures in learning many many languages and how he could swear pretty fluently in Spanish in terms of knowing the words, but his colleagues just said to him, don't ever do that again. It sounds wrong. So I think this multicultural proliferation of swearing across boundaries is going to be quite interesting. And um, I think that swearing, we might even have the exact same swear words in two different countries, but that one has a strong impact in one of those countries and less of an impact in another in fact, there is one word in particular. Um, oh, I don't know how. So it's the c word. I don't yes. know. Yes, yeah. indeed.
0: Yeah, I, I think that okay. registers. Yeah.
1: Uh, so yes, yeah, so the c word has a really weird generational. It's almost like a U shaped curve in terms of how rude you think it is. So right. in the UK, so in the seventies and eighties, it was considered, you know, the word that you would never say. And then in the 90s, around the time that I came of age, it became more of a sort of jokey insult. And you'd be much more likely to say it to your mate, your male friend, uh, call him the C word, as you would call a female friend there. And then the Internet happened and the preponderance of North American users um, replying to particularly women being on things like YouTube or Twitter with the C word as a gendered slur as opposed to a jokey insult in the way that we've been using it in the 90s has meant that it has unlike most swear words that tend to become less offensive over time, that one has got more offensive again. And so I'm always very aware that I'm kind of in this Goldilocks zone of, you know, women in (laughs) in their late 30s, early 40s who think it's an okay word to use. But women older than me and younger than me in the UK absolutely detest it. And part of the reason why it has become detestable again is because in the States it never took on that sort of jokey way of saying it. And it became a gendered slur, and the the internet brought it right back in that form. So yeah, international communication is definitely changing swearing. Where it goes next, I'm not sure.
0: I'm speaking with Emma Byrne, author of Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language and How to Build a Human, uh, What Science Knows About Childhood. After this, we'll talk a bit more about kids and swearing. Uh, It is Mother's Day here in Canada on the weekend. And, um, you know, I remember growing up, we had a swear jar. I never had to fill it too much. My dad did. Uh, But we'll get to that after this. I'm speaking with Emma Byrne, author of "Swearing Is Good for You: The Amazing Science of Bad Language" and "How to Build a Human: What Science Knows About Childhood." And I feel like now there's an intersection between those two things, uh, because I distinctly remember, you know, that idea of not swearing around your children, or the first time you hear one of your young cousins, you know, barely old enough to speak, say something awful, and think, "Well, where did they hear that?" Uh, and then the notion of the swear jar. You have, you know, you're a parent. Um, how, how has that changed your attitude towards swearing?
1: Yeah, I mean, as I was finishing writing, swearing is good for you. I was literally bouncing on the yoga ball, waiting to go into labor uh, and thoroughly willing to use swearing in labor. And I wasn't sure how I would feel the first time I heard my daughter swear. And when she did, in some ways, it was a bit of a relief because it's like, oh, that's over with. But also there was that shock of realizing that the intonation that she used, the sort of even the facial expressions that she pulled, I could see that they were. Obviously, from me, there is no way that I could say that she hadn't picked up that swearing from me. And I'm kind of reassured by some research by um, a couple who do research in the US called the Jays. And they find that most students, by the time they get to elementary school, have heard swearing and most of them hear it for the first time in the home. And their research looked at, you know, what are the effective ways of talking about and thinking about swearing in the family setting. And their advice, based on their research, was to talk about the emotions behind swearing. So if you find yourself swearing in front of your kids, just explaining what it was that you were doing. So for me, I think my most uh, likely trigger point is while driving on the motorway. And uh, somebody executing a not entirely considerate manoeuvre in front of me sometimes gets a little bit of of foul language. And then just, you know, over my shoulder saying now, the reason Mummy said that is she was very worried that that car was going to cause an accident. (laughs) And it works for two reasons. I mean, first of all, it gets them to understand that this is emotive speech. And if they use it, they can expect that there will be an emotional reaction from people. And second of all, it does kind of make it a bit boring. It sort of normalizes it, says, you know, this isn't a secret. Whereas if you if you say it and then go, oh, I never want to hear you use that word again, it takes on this double taboo, this amazing mystery of what is powerful word. So you kind of take the power out of it by doing that. And also the thing to remember is that children are incredible code, code switchers they change the way that they speak depending on if they're speaking to you or their teachers or their grandparents or their friends and that as long as you explain to your children what is and is not an acceptable word they will become pretty savvy about not using it in the wrong place and of course i'll make a few mistakes along the way it, the only time my daughter has been caught out was uh, when i said something a bit disparaging about her bike i said that it was not in a good state let's put it that way needing more maintenance before she could ride it again and she got to school and uh, turned to the teacher and proudly said, "I couldn't ride my bike today because mummy says it's." Yeah. And then, um, and I hadn't told her that that was a swear word because it it is uh, it is one that barely registers to me as a swear word. But we did have the little talk with school, and I realised that yeah, I'd missed the lesson of saying. Now, the reason that I use that word was that, you know, mummy is frustrated that I left your bike in the garden all winter and now it's rusty. So talking about what swearing is for and how you're feeling when you're using it is the most useful thing you can do if and indeed when you find yourself swearing in front of your kids.
0: Something like the swear jar would 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 suggest that it's bad uh, that you have to pay a penalty for it. But given that you found in some ways it can be if used judiciously can be beneficial, I think we all figure that out as life goes on. But what do you make of something like the pair the swear jar as 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 a form of parenting? It truly speaks to your second book, which is doing what every other parent does doesn't necessarily work, or these things that we've read about that might work don't necessarily uh, work in every circumstance, depending on the child, I would suspect.
1: That's right. I mean, every single child is unique. Every family setup is unique. And in some ways, I've written a sort of anti-manual. So it tells you some things about what's actually going on in children's brains as they develop. But it doesn't tell you what you personally must do in order to raise, you know, a happy, bright, intelligent, six figure earning child. Um, it just it basically says, just keep looking at your child with curiosity and an open mind and see what's going on. And Some of the signs in the book can really help you understand what might be going on with them, like why your teenagers suddenly become very clumsy and you never see them before 10 a.m., or why your three-year-old suddenly seems to have regressed wildly. Um, so it can explain some of the things you might be seeing, but your child is unique and your circumstances are unique. And every time you think you've figured out your child, they will develop, and you have to figure them out all over again. So in some ways, it was quite liberating because I was writing that around the same time that my daughter was in nursery school and so sort of kindergarten, and looking at that and going, nobody knows, nobody can tell you how to raise. Um, one of the books I bought for research was this ancient book called How to Raise a Brighter Baby. And I read it just wanting to hurl it across the room. And actually, most of that advice from about the 1960s was just keep looking at your child and see what they're doing and respond to them. And obviously, in this incredibly overscheduled, pressured 21st century world, this is incredibly hard, particularly when, you know, if you have a smartphone, you have your boss or your clients in your pocket, 24 hours a day, bugging you with emails and telling you what they need. So having some time that is set aside where you get to say, actually, the only person's needs who I'm responding to right now is my child's um, is something that's really important. There are some countries in the European Union that have now recognized the right to disconnect from work, recognizing that both for your own mental health but also for the health of families, it's really important to be able to just focus on your kids and what they're doing. So if science tells us anything about children, it's to be as connected with them as possible, as often as you can be.
0: Very good advice with Mother's Day coming up this weekend. And well, parents, it's for parents in general, but you know, with a nod to mums this weekend as well. Emma Byrne, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it.
1: You're very welcome.